You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Tim Powers is the author of Dinner at Deviant's Palace on Stranger Tides, Declare, Last Call, Expiration Date, Earthquake Weather, The Anubis Gates, and Three Days to Never. His newest book for Charnel House is A Time to Cast Away Stones. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Oh, uh, happy to be aboard. Tim, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about was as I was thinking back through your catalog that you were really on top of what is now a big uh, fashion trend, which is the steampunk trend, and you covered it from both angles. And that's what I think is so interesting. In Dinner at Deviant's Palace, you give us a future that has many kind of like steampunk leftovers of the past after everything's kind of broken down. And in Anubis Gates, you give us this kind of the, you know, more of the steampunk past. So talk about the kind of writing environment that you were in when you were creating these books and how you came to, uh, uh, happened upon this vision? Well, uh, it it really started with um, an, an old project that Roger Elwood had. He was a big anthologist in the 70s, and he uh, was the editor of uh, Laser Books. And at one point, he... Boy, Laser Books, I remember Phoenix Prime, Ted White, on yeah. Laser Books with purple page edges. Yeah, yeah, that was, a, that was a result of the Harlequin Romance Company deciding that science fiction might be as lucrative a field as romances were. And so briefly, only for a year or two, they, uh, they ran the Laser Books line. And they discovered that science fiction readers, unlike uh, romance readers, discriminate, uh, prefer one writer to another, and are therefore unreliable as a customer base. And so they retired the line. But while it was going, they published my first book and K.W. Jeter's first book, and I think Jerry Pornell's first book. Uh, as well as Dean Koontz and a number of other people. So in spite of its kind of shaky motives, uh, it uh, wound up doing some good work. But Elwood at one point contacted me and Jeter and Ray Nelson and said uh, that a British company wanted a series of books about King Arthur reincarnated throughout history. And uh, I think I went into this in our previous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, 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 you guys all uh, divvied up the incarnations. Yeah. And that's where your visions of steampunk came from? Well, that's where I got, uh, I was forced to do research, <laughs> uh, which ordinarily I think I would not have, you know, investigated. And I discovered that all the little nuts and bolts and... Uh, dress and uh, customs that already exist somewhere um, not only add uh, a kind of tangibility to a story, but also a kind of familiarity. So the reader thinks, yeah, right, I uh, 
seems to me I've heard of this. Uh, it seems to me that uh, rings a bell somewhere. Mm, mm. And so even in a book like Deviant's Palace, which was set in the future, I still tried to... <laughs> um, evoke a kind of history of the place. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I had, uh, as much as I could, uh, the society in that future living on kind of uh, patterns and protocols and salvage uh, based on the previous civilization. So I suppose, arguably, that might have given it uh, a kind of steampunk tone with that is, you know, kind of Vehicles made out of old cars that are now being pulled by horses. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the custom that you let your wagon warm up for a moment before you <laughs> snap the reins and get the horse moving. You know, um, I do that every morning. <laughs> Literally, it's a station wagon. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there you are. <laughs> um yeah, I think it's kind of a reach to mm -hmm. see steampunk elements in Deviant's Palace, but but then I've never uh, quite seen the, the the real steampunk elements in Anubis Gates either. I mean, it doesn't involve. It takes place before the Victorian period, mm -hmm. and it really doesn't involve contemporary science. It involves what arguably could have been contemporary magic. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's more the feel and milieu that you evoke, especially in that underworld, that kind of uh, secret underworld that where you know a lot of the magic takes place. I, I I think to me at least, when I first read that book, I just said, "Wow, this is kind of like if if Jules Verne wrote or H.G. Wells <laughs> decided to write something about magic, you know, or collaborated with, you know, did." Did a, took acid with Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It um, there is something just sort of obviously intrinsically fascinating about mm -hmm. secret tunnels. Um, I know there was a rumor that uh, uh, miles of ancient secret tunnels had been found recently under uh, the old Chinatown in Bakersfield, and I don't know whether it was true or not, but. My instant thought was, oh, how cool. Oh, wow. What, <laughs> oh, boy, what are they going to find down there? I hadn't heard about that, but it uh, sounds like it's worth a trick to Bakersfield, and I can't imagine anything else that particularly would be. And I'd want to make real sure those tunnels were <laughs> there. It wouldn't, it wouldn't do to wind up there and be like Rick in Casablanca, you know. Uh, the waters, but we're in the middle of a desert. <laughs> I, I was misinformed. Um and then again, it uh, it's one thing to say secret tunnels, uh, you know, of incalculable age, but it's a big help to be able to say under London, mm -hmm. under this specific street, um, was once the basement of an old hospital, and of course none of that was made up. I, the tunnels, uh, the hospital. Uh, the beggar colony that met down there. I got all of that out of um, Mayhew's London Labor and London Poor. Uh, I think I mentioned in the previous session that uh, my system of research prevents me from requiring any imagination. 
<laughs> I just the the big trick, the big challenge is to find the right fascinating research sources, and then simply connect the dots. Now, uh, talking about connected dots, let's talk a little bit about on Stranger Tides. Yeah, that was a long string of dots. <laughs> How, when did when did you uh, become interested in in essentially the pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> Well, uh... You lived in Orange County. Were you a, a, a regular visitor to Disneyland? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I like to think no Orange County citizen goes too long without visiting Disneyland again. Mm. And, of course, my wife and I both grew up here, so we went there a lot as kids. And I remember when the Pirates of the Caribbean ride was brand new. Um, and And certainly, you know... I must have had it in mind when I was writing on Stranger Tides, in addition to having a number of other things in mind as well. Um, and I wrote it after Lester Del Rey had rejected a number of my books. He uh, bought or uh, gave me a contract on the uh, on the Anubis Gates based on an outline I'd written. And But then when he saw the finished book, he said, well, no, this is no good, Powers. Um, and I said, well, I, I could rewrite it. And he said, no, I, I, it's plain no good at all. I don't want it, but you do owe me another book. So I wrote um, Dinner at Deviant's Palace, and he said, uh, no, this, this makes Anubis Gates look good. Um, <laughs> you still owe me a book. And uh, so I wrote on Stranger Tides, thinking, well, he's got a, like, pirate adventure, you know, zombies, fountain of youth, sea battles, cutlass fights. And he didn't like it either. Um, one good thing, uh, I, I was really uh, fortunate to get him as an editor, because every time he would reject a book, even though he made it clear he didn't want to see it again, he would write me a four-page single-spaced letter explaining everything that was wrong with it. Hmm. And they were very convincing. I think, golly, he's right. And so before I would send the rejected book on to Ace, I'd fix it up according to Delray's criticism. Hmm. And so anyway, uh, uh, On Stranger Tides wound up with Ace Books and got that gorgeous Jim Gurney cover. Oh, it's it's totally memorable. I remember the first time I saw that in the <laughs> bookstore down at Aladdin Books in, in Fullerton. Mm. I remember Aladdin Books. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that cover uh, was responsible for any momentum the book had. And uh, Well, now, what kind of research did you do to—I to, mean, what book or reading that you well, happened across uh, inspired I, you to go with the Pirates? Uh, I fixed on pirates at that time before I did the research. Oh, really? Yeah, it just struck me, you know, pirates mixed with voodoo in the Caribbean. It seems like that would be a rich, you know, field to play in. Slam dunk, yeah. Yeah, it, as soon as you think of it, you think, well, yeah, you could do something there. And so I read... Uh, this book by, I believe, a guy named Esquimeling, who I've read was actually Daniel Defoe. It's been 25 years. I may be messing 
the details up a bit, but um, and it's virtually the only source about Blackbeard, Steed Bonnet, uh, Sawney Bean. It was no, not Sawney Bean. Uh, the old guy they called Sawney. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read a million books about ship handling um, until it got to the point I think where I knew more about sailing than anyone on earth who had not actually set foot in a sailboat. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, I read a whole lot on voodoo. Um, and, oh, National Geographic, for example, had a great uh, illustrated article on uh, the earthquake that wrecked uh, Kingstown. That sounds uh, very familiar. <laughs> this, yeah. this is like last week, was it? <laughs> no. Oh, I know, I know. God help Jamaica. Mm. Um, and I wound up with what I hope to have, which is 20 or 30 things that were too cool not to use. And I applied to them my uh, sort of paranoid squint, saying, you know, nothing is a coincidence um, that old governor, the guy they called a governor, eccentric, crazy man hanging around um, New Providence Island, he's somebody. Well, who could he be? Well, it turned out he was Ponce de Leon. Um, and the thing fell into place nicely, and I uh, was, for example, puzzled by Blackbeard's behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he of all the historical characters that have had weird behavior, um, putting all the little burning fuses in his beard, and at one point he shot his best friend's leg off, and and then got captured through such epic negligence that you wonder what was really going on. And so I told myself, well find a context in which all these peculiar behaviors are not what they really were in real life, which is lunacy, but instead were shrewd and uh, very, very clever. And so I figured, well, he meant to get captured uh, so that he would documentably have died and be able to start again under a new identity to do which he had to make sure of dying on the ocean so that his blood would wind up in the salt water where various magical procedures could take effect. And uh, and it was a very rich field for this sort of book. It turned out that uh, <coughs> Supernatural and Pirates was a very comfortable fit. And so it was published in 87. Sounds like a lot of fun to write. It was. It was. It was fun to research. Um, very colorful crowd. Uh, that's what you always want to find. And mm-hmm. you don't really know whether you've found it or not until you're about waist deep in the research. Spies was the same way. Mm-hmm. Espionage and all that. Declare, such a beautiful book. My wife just read that. And, oh. And she thought she was just blown away. Oh, bless her heart. Yeah, it was, it's a, and another book uh, ripe to be made into a movie. Uh, tell us a little bit, do you know what, how distant the uh, resemblance between your wonderful original work and what's 
getting thrown up on the screen is? No, actually, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, what, 96 mm-hmm. when they made the first uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I went and saw it and thought, well, I want, you know... Uh, you can't quite sue, but you should no, be able exactly. to. No, <laughs> exactly. Can't, can't sue, uh, but I wonder if they read my book. Had and they? And then before the second movie came out, Disney had approached my agent and said, we want an option on Stranger Tides in case we do a fourth Pirates movie, which was, of course, still very far in the future. The second one hadn't even been released yet. But I was hugely optimistic um, I thought, well, boy, you know, I want this second one. I believe we went and saw it the first day it came out, just mm. to add our two votes to making it, you know, a big success. And it did have, it struck me, an element or two from the book, the idea of a character up in the rigging uh, of a mast standing on a crossbar holding two poles to work a puppet down on the deck below. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, now, hmm. I wonder if that, that would have been there if I had not written my book. And, of course, the characters named Jack and Elizabeth. Um, but they had, by that time, got the option, so I figured, carry on. And uh, and then, finally, uh, they, they wouldn't actually buy the book until they were virtually filming. Really? Like the week before. Wow. <laughs> They'll keep optioning it mm-hmm. so as to hold the you know rights to buy the rights. But apparently it's standard with movies that they don't outright purchase the property until they're setting up the cameras. Wow. Just in case the star falls under a bus or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, for a year or so at least, I was anxiously watching like Google News uh for word of any progress and i was going crazy with they'd announce oh we're not going to do it we're going to do the lone ranger instead and i think no nobody wants a lone ranger <laughs> and then they not say, until you've written it your your novel about it <laughs> oh yeah and uh then they'd say no we're going to do it we're going to do it and i'd relax and then there was a online article that said Johnny Depp was killed in a car crash in France. I thought, no! And, of course, that was imaginary. But then they finally did purchase it, uh, I think in April. And at that point, I pretty well stopped bothering following it on Google News. But I haven't been in any kind of contact with anybody. Mm. I mean, at first I thought, well, no doubt the scriptwriters will want to uh, confer with me. <clears throat> but evidently, they don't. Uh, it looks like my wife and I will get to go watch a bit of filming next week. Oh, wow. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. They're going to be filming in the L.A. area. Mm. Down but, in, off Newport Beach by where you could have uh, done your research on sailing, eh? <laughs> I, I, I don't even know where they're going to be. Mm. Um, but... I gather the movie involves The Fountain of Youth and Blackbeard, but beyond that, I have no idea. In fact, the the details that have come out are not from my book, things like A Mermaid, 
a missionary. I'm thinking, okay, well, those are new. <laughs> but I certainly don't mind. I, I've never thought that a movie has much obligation to resemble a book it might have been based on. I always think of uh, To Have and Have Not, mm. which was a great Hemingway book and a great Bogart movie. But the only things in common, well, really, is the name of the protagonist. Mm. And the title of the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet Hemingway thought, well, I don't care what they do. You know, I got paid. They can make any movie they want. This is the, uh, Dan Simmons once told me a story. His his version of dealing with Hollywood is you go to the Las Vegas, California line. You throw, they throw the money across at you. You throw the book across at them, and then you go back home. Sure, and, sure. And wait yeah. for it to show up. And Yeah, I always think it's hopeless and naive for a writer to uh, try to intervene and try to have some influence on the movie-making process and try to work to make the eventual movie, in some sense, similar to the original book. Well, it's such a different experience. I mean... Uh, when we read your book, it's a, just this immersive, fully detailed reading experience that, you know, we carry around like a memory. Yeah, I think uh, it, would, it would be uh, a mistake for a movie to too closely resemble a book in most cases. Mm. They're such different forms and work by such different mathematics. Uh, and, of course, I always remember that famous line of James Cain's uh, when someone said to him, what do you think of what Hollywood has done to your novels? And he pointed at the bookshelf and said, they haven't done anything to them. Look, there they are. <laughs> that now, would be my attitude. Now, one of the things I was thinking back that you do really well is to write about writers. Now, m most writers don't lead particularly exciting lives. True. But uh, in the stress of her regard, you really captured uh, uh, Byron and, and his in his famous uh, holiday. They and, were exceptions, that yeah. crowd. And your newest book also uh, takes a, a look at some writers. It's called uh, A Time to Cast Away Stones. When we last spoke, you said that uh, you were hoping to be done with your new novel by June, I think, of this year. Now yeah. I'm hoping it'll be August. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, good. We're in August. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it still looks possible. Oh, good, good. Well, uh, tell us uh, about A Time to Cast Away Stones. What is it? And... Uh, you know, how did you uh, talk about working with Charnel House? Because I love their the look of their books is amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. Joe Stefko, who is uh, who is Charnel House, um, he's also a drummer for the Turtles. You know, <laughs> so happy together. Uh, and he's been drummer for uh, a number of bands, uh, Meatloaf, and any number of them. And uh, the Turtles were playing at a world fantasy convention in Providence in 1986. And he and I got talking in the bar, and uh, and he said he had always wanted to, uh, you know, publish a book. And I had, by that time, just about decided to quit uh, dealing with the whole limited edition field just because... Uh, at that time, a whole lot of them looked uh, kind of cheap. Mm. Uh, it was like 
print any old thing and put a limitation page in it that's signed and call it a you know call it a collector's item. But Stefko was enthusiastic, and so uh, I said, "Well, yeah, do you can I, this this new book, um, The Stress of Her Regard, has no commitment to any small press publisher. Why don't you do that?" And he did a gorgeous job. Oh God, I love that book. It's so, you know. One of the things about that novel itself is that when I read that novel, think about that novel, I just feel like I'm in the middle of the Alps and there's these <laughs> enormous blue skies over me and there's clouds in the skies and maybe those clouds are the gods and, and or something. And, and that's the way that book itself makes me feel. It really evokes that, the spacious printing, the beautiful binding, you know, oh, your yeah. drawings. He's, he's an artist. Uh, he's always calling me up and saying, oh, I've got, you know, this... Japanese silk to bind them in, and, I, and there's this company which is uh, two sisters in Milwaukee, and they make paper, and I've ordered this special kind of paper, and I think he winds up, his books are not cheap, but I think he winds up barely clearing a profit, because he gets so carried away with all the <laughs> materials, but um, in 2000, Nine, uh, he said, you know, this is going to be the 20th anniversary of Charnel House, and the first book was on Stranger Tides, and and I found this great uh, book on a notebook of Shelley's that was salvaged from the sunken wreck of his boat after he drowned, and uh, look, there's all these odd things in this notebook. Don't you think you could write a sort of novella uh, for the 20th anniversary having to do with, you know, the aftermath of Shelley's drowning and Byron's death. And I said, well, I suppose I could. Um, he says, well, don't you think it'd be great if you did it in time that we could publish it on the 20th anniversary of Charnel House and, you know, publication of uh, Stress of Regard? And so I said, well, sure, yes, okay. And so I began the research process again, this time looking at the aftermath of Shelley's and Byron's deaths. And it turned out that this guy, Edward John Trelawney, who had been um, a minor character in Stress of Her Regard, uh, he was a friend of all those guys, very dramatic, piratical, uh, swashbuckling type character. He went on to... Um, get into all kinds of wars and conflicts in Greece after Byron died in Greece. And when I read up on those, all his adventures, I thought, well, you know, this presents all the same uh, anomalies and enigmas and questions that, uh, that lead to a story. And so I connected the dots again, and, uh, and again it was... Uh, a really fascinating field to work in. It was right during the time of the Greek Revolution and uh, their war with Tur Turkey, and uh, and it was all taking place there, you know, around uh, Mount Parnassus and Delphi, and and it uh, it worked out to be a a, a really colorful time and place to, to set a story. And then coincidentally, uh, 
looking around for what to do for the next book, I snagged on Dante Gabriel Rossetti and his family, mm. uh, mainly because I read that uh, when Rossetti's wife killed herself, he, all consumed with grief, laid his notebook full of all his poems in the coffin with her, and they were buried with her. And then some years later, a publisher said to him, you know, if you had a collection of poetry, we could publish it. And Rossetti, in effect, said, give me a couple days. And he did dig her up. Wow. And I thought, okay, well, now. He did not dig her up to get the poems back. That's a given. That was the excuse. Wow. What did, what did he really dig her up for? Get something else out, put something in, something besides simply retrieve the poems. And so I began... Uh, extensively researching him and his sister Christina. And then I discovered that their uncle was John Polidori, who was... The vampire. Yeah, the main vampire in Stress of Her Regard. And I thought, well, now, damn, look at that. Isn't that odd? And then I discovered that uh, a friend of the family in the, what would it have been, 1870s, uh, was old, 80-year-old, Edward John Trelawney, and and in fact Trelawney was still carrying around a bunch of charred bits of Shelley's bones from the funeral pyre, and all the Rossettis were unable to have children that lived. Either they had no children at all, or in the case of William Rossetti, their brother, uh, children were born dead. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And, and then Trelawney gave William a piece of Shelley's charred jawbone, and after that, William was able to have children that lived. Oh, this is... <laughs> and that's all just history. I mean, I didn't make any of that up. Oh, my. <laughs> so I thought, well, Powers, it looks fairly clearly laid out here. And so the current book, which I hope to have finished by the end of the month, um, explores all that. And so it winds up being a kind of sequel to uh, both Stress of Regard and uh, Time to Cast Away Stones, though it wasn't deliberate. Now, will there be a limited edition of that from Charnel House, too? Well, yes. And also... Earlier on, you mentioned, uh, was there a limited edition of uh, On Stranger Tides from Charnel House, or, or was that Stress of Her Regard? That was Stress of Her Regard. Okay, good. There previously had been a limited edition of On Stranger Tides, but all the guy did was buy the pages from Ace. <laughs> In effect, bought a, a big order of the book from Ace, but said, keep the covers, keep the binding. And he simply put a fresh binding on it. Well, you know, that sounds like something out of one of your own books. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> he told me once, well, but that binding is going to be in libraries 500 years from now. I said, yes, and between the boards is going to be five tablespoons of brown powder. <laughs> I have one of those. I have. I don't have the limited edition of Stranger Tides, but I do have the, uh, the, the Ace Trade. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm. Hoping, 
<clears throat> that it, it's going to survive I, the, the next reread. Now, yeah, it's getting a little brown. <laughs> now, uh, uh, well, this just sounds wonderful. We we all can't wait. What now? Assuming you turn this in, say by you know September first, when will we see it uh, in Charnel House and at, from Ace? How long does that? What's the turnaround? Um, usually, it's a. I usually take as a rule of thumb that the pipeline is about a year long. Mm. Um, they can do quicker if it's about the O.J. Simpson trial or something, but. <laughs> Ordinarily, it's about a year, and the Charnel House edition will probably be just about exactly the same time as the Harper Collins edition, just because uh, the big publisher usually insists on that. Right. They don't want the limited edition too far preceding their own. Not that I think it would be a threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually, the limited edition guy would like to be able to clearly be the first edition, but uh, usually they wind up coming around up about the same time. Now, I'm wondering, is anybody going to do anything uh, kind of limited edition of, of On Stranger Tides when with uh, regards to the movie? Not limited edition. Um, Bill Schaefer at Subterranean recently, within the last couple of years, did a limited edition of it, optimistically, mm. since, uh, you know, it's... <laughs> Not a new book anymore, right? Oh, those—they've oh, been doing some beautiful stuff, and that's one thing I wanted to talk to you about. You've kind of done some uh, what could be called collaborations with J.K. Potter. Yeah, and yeah, I they're getting beautiful work. work out of him. Yeah, boy, and it's so interesting to think of the arc of his career because he was doing Photoshop before Photoshop even existed. That's right. <laughs> yes, I remember his first pictures. Everybody was just dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you think, how the hell did he do that? Was that? Did he find that and take a picture of it, or did he somehow warp a photo? Um, yeah, he uh, illustrated uh, my Last Call trilogy, which um, Subterranean recently did, and gorgeous, gorgeous illustrations. Mm. Um, a handsome set altogether, actually. Yeah, that and I has have those ever been optioned? One can see that. Uh, not that I'd really want to see them on a movie screen. I think it'd be be better fixed for a, a long form. Yeah, actually, Last Call is currently optioned by a guy in L.A. who has hopes of uh, doing it as some sort of mini series. Mm, that would be what we would hope to see. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd. Well, I'd. I'd love it no matter what they did with it. I mean, they could do it as a. Warner Brothers cartoon, and it'd be all right with me. But, <laughs> uh, but I, he's, and we've met him and his wife a number of times, uh, which is, I think, kind of unusual for this business. And uh, uh, he's optimistic, so I'm optimistic. You know, I've kind of managed to keep myself superstitiously ignorant of how movies work. You know, one last thing I wanted to ask you, I was, I was thinking that I think one of the things that I like about your books is I spent quite a bit of time of my life in uh, Orange County. I lived in Santa Ana. I lived just up the street, just up Harbor Boulevard from Disneyland. Oh, yeah. I lived in, I went to UC Irvine. I lived in ah, Newport Beach. I didn't realize you were such a neighbor. <laughs> yeah. Where are you now? Uh, now I'm in uh, Northern California. But uh, no, and my parents lived it in. uh, Oh boy, it was a development that Coons wrote about uh, Placentia. Oh yeah. There's a scene in Watchers that's is set in that where my parents' houses were built. (laughs) 
And, and, and I wanted to just ask you about the influence of Orange County in your fiction, because it's such an odd place. Yeah. Um, it's both wild and the most domesticated place in the world. And, yeah, when we were living there, um, I moved to Santa Ana in 76 mm. and um, moved out uh, in 06. And uh, we were living in a funny little sort of semi-barrio area. Uh, people think of Orange County as affluent, conservative, kind of new, really. Oh, I know exactly what part of Santa Ana you, you lived in because I used to I used to hang out there too around that time. I was in and Irvine at the time. Well, yeah, we were one block south of the norms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in spite of the sort of general perception of Orange County, uh, the area we were in was lots of gunfire, crack traffic, prostitution. Um, you go out for a walk on Sunday morning and. Idly follow trails of spattered blood on the pavement uh, till it actually led up a walkway into a house, and which, at which point you just kind of walk on unobtrusively. And it, uh, it's in spite of all that kind of grim-sounding stuff, it still was you know beautiful weather, palm trees, wild parrots uh, nesting in the carob trees. Uh, so it was kind of a mix of very sunny California uh, weather and views, and at the same time, if you look down toward the pavement, kind of a, oh, gritty, semi-perilous type of landscape. People would rush up at stoplights and offer to sell you crack cocaine, you know. Now, this was when you were having your, uh, when you had a, a writer's circle with, uh, I believe, Blaylock, uh, Yeah, and Jeter Phil Dick Coons. lived only a couple blocks south, yeah. uh, and Jeter lived right there as well. Um, yeah, every Thursday night in our apartment, which was <coughs> upstairs over a barbershop, um, everybody would get together and drink scotch and smoke cigars, and, uh... Phil Dick, I remember, would never drink anything except Orange Crush because he had two blocks to drive home, uh, which seemed overcautious. <laughs> and we didn't actually talk about writing much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose we'd talk about rejections we had got. Uh, I remember we, you know, one of us would say, "Oh, Daw rejected this book I sent them," and Phil Dick would say. Well, it's it's just as well. There's too many books in the world already. <laughs> Echoing Stanislaw Lem, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, it was actually a very sociable, um, cannery row-type situation. But it all sort of fell apart. Uh, Phil Dick moved, everybody else moved away, and so when we got an uh, opportunity to buy a house up here in San Bernardino. We did. That sounds familiar. That's actually where my parents moved out to as well. They moved uh, to Victorville. Oh, yeah, sure. Just over the hill. Just over the hill. Now, um, I just one, one last question. Tell, do you have, have you started the research phase for your next book No, yet? I have no clue at all. 
Um, I'm vaguely thinking it might be contemporary again because it'd be fun to be able to write about cell phones and TVs and freeways and stuff. Um, but my wife wants me to write about the Bronte family. Well, either one sounds like great fun to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I always, when I'm finished with a book, there's just this empty landscape with nothing on the horizon, and I have no clue what the next one will be, if, in fact, there will be another at all. I'm sure there will be. Well, yeah, I, I've done it enough times where I know there always is another. <laughs> but but always at that point, you think, now just get a job, man. Don't get a job, Tim. <laughs> I've been speaking with Tim Powers. He's the author of Dinner at Deviant's Palace, On Stranger Tides, Declare, Last Call, Expiration Date, Earthquake Weather, The Anubis Gates, and Three Days to Never. His newest book, just out from Charnel House, is A Time to Cast Away Stones. Thank you for speaking with me. Tim? Oh, it's been a great time. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.